I've heard so many young people say adulting is hard or they're doing this adulting thing. Well, guess what? Adulting is hard. And when you get into the work world, I'm watching this culture clash between the businesses trying to figure out how to train and how to integrate young people and young people learning the rules of the road in this adulting business world. Well, let's find out. I'm going to talk to the author of How to Be a Millennial Whisperer to figure out what the millennials need and what the businesses need to be able to live happily ever after. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to Spencer Deering, president of Best Work Inc., where he and his team work with individuals and companies to simply do their best work. Spencer's particularly committed to working with the next generation of high potential emerging millennial leaders. And he's written a book, How to Be a Millennial Whisperer, to help companies work with this new generation of employees. You can learn more about Spencer and his work at bestworkinc.com. Welcome, Spencer. I love talking to you. Sarah, thanks so much for having me. So we have what I'll call a culture clash that we've got employees, young, you know, young employees that have one set of expectations about what their future is going to be. We have employers who are used to a certain type of employee, used to managing employees in a certain way, and those two are not necessarily seeing eye to eye. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Great. Well, I agree. There's a lot of discord out there between, uh, I think, our 80 million friends that are considered millennials and then the older generations above who are much more similar to each other than the millennials are to either baby boomers or um, my Gen X generation. Yeah. So I heard a really frightening stat actually last week that a third of millennials are only going to last a few years in their first job. There are going to be problems with attendance. 50% of them have absentee issues. 25% of them have lateness issues. They have reliability and performance issues. So it's not like they're leaving the jobs necessarily. The jobs are also leaving them. So we definitely have a, a root rot problem with understanding what what's required on both ends so can you just also set the stage a little bit about what the millennial experience is and what the employer experience is so let's talk about first like from the millennials point of view and you know we're talking about millennials but there's the gen z's that are starting to come in so the you know the young people what's their point of view they come into an office what are they expecting what are they seeing well, I think actually, and we can speak about this in a little bit, but I think Gen Z may actually be our savior. So we can talk about that a little different because they are distinct from the millennials in a lot of ways. But I think your point about stats, um, I read a stat that 40% of millennials are happy at their job, but going to look to leave anyway. Like to me, that is like such an alarm bell. Like what? You're happy, but you're always kind of seeking the next thing, right? And to, we were chatting before we even got online here just about what is enough, you know, are the basics enough or is, um, you know, a fulfilled job prospect today and opportunity to move forward enough. And I think the real discord comes with the story that these millennials were sold as they were growing up, which is, A, you can do whatever you want to do. That's like the worst advice anybody could ever get, right? 
we are all like horrendous in 99.9% of everything. We need to find is that 1% or 0.01% that we're great at and figure that out and double down on that. Because I think the happiness and fulfillment bucket that they've also been raised with, which is, hey, you want to be happy, you want to be fulfilled, and it's up to institutions to provide you that happiness and fulfillment is like a fool's errand, right? And one of the things we consistently drill into a lot of the young folks that we work with is stop focusing on happiness and fulfillment and focus on excellence and pursued excellence, and those two will actually ensue. But so in a lot of ways, they've got it backwards, and that's what's so frustrating for companies because they come in and are looking to be happy and fulfilled at work, and the work and the and the bosses and the managers and the leadership is looking for excellence. So there's real disconnect there. Does that make sense? It does, but is there something even underneath that? Um, and I was talking to somebody yesterday, actually, about um, uh, small, small, it was small Business Week is coming up, so we were talking about businesses, and we're talking about the short-term thinking of young people and that you know in this immediate gratification world like they're happy now but do they not know how to sustain that like is there something else going on that they are in pursuit of like they, they can never stay in the happiness there's always the pursuit of the next the next the next there's the you know a dopamine hit that goes on in their brain that they can't they don't sustain that level of peace and satisfaction yeah, because I think there so there are three levels of happiness, right? In, a, in ascending order, it would be pleasure and gratification are number one, strength and virtue number two, and meaning and purpose number three. And I think most millennials are stuck on that ground floor, which is they're just seeking short-term pleasure and gratification, misunderstanding that that actually is meaning and purpose, and it's wholly not the same thing. I did. They and think- I think we we know at work, right? when people are purpose-driven at work, their engagement goes way up and the work they produces, um, they, the works they produce are of such higher quality. And that, again, is where that kind of dissonance resides, which is, wait a second, we don't want to just kind of scratch the surface of what you could do or what you might do. It's what you really want to do, which frankly, a lot of them don't even know, such that it can create the most value around here at work. Yeah, but let me challenge you on that, though, because there's so much talk among this generation about being mission-driven, and all these companies that now are jumping on the PR bandwagon about their mission, and they're saving the spotted owls, and they're, you know, doing away with straws and protecting the earth, so that the young people think that they're on this mission. So where's, where's the disconnect in that? Or is the mission so much bigger? Like, their, their mission in the world is different than Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. Well, the mission is different, and this is exactly the problem they fall into. So they are eager to embrace somebody else's mission. Okay, we're going to save the spotted owl. It's great. I'll buy your coffee rather than the competitor's coffee. But if you ask them what their mission is, they don't know. And that's where you get in real trouble. Clay Christensen is a great thinker who really aligns kind of the approach to effective business with also an approach to how to effectively run your life. And he says, whether you're talking to someone who's running a business or how you treat your own life, you should be able to answer four questions. Are you spending your resources on that which is most important to you? Do you have a mission? Do you have a plan? And how are you going to measure your life or your results? And if you envision the young people and the young professionals that are in your purview, if you ask them those four questions, they would probably say no to all of them. So it's easy, and this is this is actually, I think, the real core issue at work because 
you know, it was helicopter parents and now it's snowplow parents, right? Right. Because they basically were raised on this drug of giving up autonomy, or frankly, maybe their parents took autonomy from them, right? There is a real inability to actually want to take on responsibility. So they want to be given authority, but not take on the responsibility. And so then they start confusing a lot of motion with progress, and then the whole thing goes sideways. But I think because they are basically thinking, okay, life is this train trip that I need to get on. There's a conductor at the front, whether it's mom and dad driving me to all my you know, elite sporting events or whether it's some principal who's going to tell me what to do to get into college or somewhere else. I keep handing over that responsibility. And when I get to work or anywhere else in life, I think about, okay, well, I'll just hook my car to that engine, right? So, okay, maybe I'll just you know, spot it out today, but then all of a sudden there's no enduring relationship with that mission. So the next day it's going to be save the wilderness tomorrow, right? Because I don't have my own view of what my mission is. I just kind of lurch from others to others. Well, they weren't allowed to develop it. They were, they had, they had their lives programmed for them. Exactly. And so if you are, if you go through life thinking life is a train trip, okay, you get on in the beginning and then somebody else is at the helm and you go stop to stop. And as long as you do okay, and you're just kind of this like risk averse generalist, and you hang out in the back of the train, you'll get to where you want to go. It's wholly the wrong metaphor to be thinking about with them, right? Like they need to view their lives as a yacht race, basically, and they are at the helm. And yet they've been trained, and again, that going back to that original point about this bag of goods they got sold early on in life, which is, hey, you need to you know, work for a company that's gonna develop you. And hey, you need, to, you need to go to a school that's all about you. It's like, wait a second, you have to think about what mission, again, going back to that mission, what mission and what skills are you bringing to the table such that when they provide you the context, you're able to create value in a way that's important to you and also meaningful to the institution. Yeah, actually, yeah I, want to, I want to come back actually to some of those very basic things because going back to the, I'll call it the core culture class. So the young kids come in and they, as I always say, they think that they graduated with a degree in vice president and that they should be on the mission, they should be on the big yep. picture, they should be on this high-speed train of growth. And yet at the most basic level, the employers, you know, we used to have people that just, they understood that the, that they had to pay their dues. People came in, they understood that it would take time till they got promoted. They understood that they had to follow the rules. They had to be in on time. Sometimes you had to work late. Sometimes, you know, you had to do what you needed to do to get the job done. Um, that, you know, you had to speak up for yourself. Like all these kind of basic rules of self-advocacy, and self-responsibility, mm-hmm. those skills, those basic skills, I find that as an employer, I'm needing to train young people when they come in to simply be responsible and start there before they can even, mm-hmm. you know, and then as you say, we need to figure out how to inspire them, but also like they just need to get trained on the basics of adulting and showing up and doing what they're told to do, in my opinion. What, like, what are you seeing in that? 100%, because everybody gets third and fourth chances. So it's like when you're raising a child, right? And the child, you know, you're in the, here we are, we're at the restaurant. The child really starts whining, 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 whining for dessert. Everybody's starting to look. It feels uncomfortable, so you just give them the dessert. And it feels like the right thing to do right there, right? And we do that enough, that kid is going to learn very quickly that whining is okay, and that's actually how I get what I want. 
The same thing if we parent kids and give them second, third, and fourth chances all the time and never let them fail, which is the number one thing I think that we have not provided this generation in any meaningful way. So then it's like, oh, yeah, whether it's my boss or my parents or my friends, I'll always get a second, third, or fourth chance, right, because the consequences always get pushed out. So, again, they've been developed to actually embrace that and not and be kind of flummoxed when you call them out, right? They'll give you that look like, wow, Sarah, why are you yelling at me? And you're like, what are you talking about? You've been late five right. days in a row, right? Right. Well, and let alone, like, you're just giving feedback and they say you're yelling, right? I'm not exactly. yelling, right? It's not yelling. And I right. think that's the other thing. You know, what, what's happened here is that, A, they mistake discomfort for pain, which is a big miscalculation, right? Discomfort is actually what you have to get to to grow because you want to get into discomfort and then reflect on it and then you can progress. But a lot of them, they have never actually been able to fail. And this, and what's interesting is this whole, even I, I, I view it almost as like extended adolescence, right? And adolescence in and of itself is a fairly new idea. Like sexually mature young people who still live with their parents, I mean, we didn't really have that until you know the turn of the 20th century with universal education and child labor laws, right? So all of a sudden, this whole idea of adolescence came up. And I think we're happy that it did because there is value for the individual and also the family to, to kind of protract childhood through adolescence. But when it's endless and you consistently have a backstop that your parents are providing, you never actually are able to truly fail, and that's where you genuinely develop. We all know it, right? Like. I mean, I, we're, we're having growing pains right now as a company, and I got called up to a client to have a kind of complicated conversation recently in which we got some really specific feedback that you have to be eager for because that's where you're going to grow. But they recoil from it because in a lot of ways they're fragile. And to your point, that sounds like, oh, wait, you're speaking sternly to me. You're yelling at me. And you're like, well, oh, I'm not yelling. You want me to yell? <laughs> well, exa- well, that, <laughs> you could really. Exactly. Right, I got like, that I'm yelling. You have it. But, but and to your point also thing. that these kids never got negative feedback. Everything was fine. Never. There was always the second chance. Like it's, they, it's, it's okay to be tense. Oh, that's great. You're awesome. It's like, that's a great teachable moment, you know? But they Are don't. Are you happy with being tense? Did you try your best to be tense? If so, great. But if you just kind of mailed it in and everybody gets a trophy and isn't that nice, it's like a disaster. And I think they lean into that collective group think in a way, to your point about Generation Z, Generation Z does not do, which is great. And then they insulate themselves. But so are they? But is, I part of, is part of where you said that they want to jump from job to job, so they're they're happy, but they want to leave because the minute that you know that they expect to leave, that the minute that that things get tough, they're jumping, right? That the minute things get uncomfortable, the minute I find you know that when they get outside their comfort zone, right, where they're where they're not certain, because they're very they need that feedback, as you've said, that they you know they they have this fear of failure that they haven't done it, right? So they need the feedback and the reassurance, and the minute they don't necessarily get it, they're gone. Because they, it's almost like they get embarrassed. They don't know what to do with themselves. That's true, but even let's, let's even take any negative feedback out. Let's just say they're 100% happy at work, but they're still gonna leave anyway. Right. I think it goes back to that original idea of you know, Christensen's question, do you have a mission? And if you don't have a mission, if you don't have any sort of personal self-awareness, which would allow the ability to be all in, you're always looking out there for what could possibly be next because at the end of the day, you're kind of unfulfilled internally, right? And so, as you know, you, I'm sure, are great people in your world that are very personally Mm mission-driven, and those people could actually thrive in a lot of different environments. 
because they know that they're going to tie whatever they're doing to their personal mission. I think we've got so many young people who have never had the opportunity to develop a real clear vision of what they want to be doing and where they should be that it just is creating this massive churn where they're going to continue to look elsewhere all the time for fulfillment. So, but um, we'll And the other thing that I see a lot, and this is the other thing that really frustrates managers and leaders, and it can be solved for, the first thing you have to do is name it, right? And then I think the other thing is it's not a training thing, it's a developing thing. It's not like, oh, you know, learn how to use Excel through this training. It's like as a manager and, and a leader, you have to be willing to spend a lot of time with these young folks and redevelop the mindset so that they actually can have the behavior stick. Because if you don't stick, change the mindset, the behaviors won't stick. And one of the things I think is so important is they are very reactive instead of anticipatory. And we drive a lot of athletic experience into what we do because we have a lot of elite athletes that work with us in, in terms of training. And if you watch, and it's the same thing in business, you know, winners anticipate and losers react. And yet we have all these young people who just kind of come to us with their eyes open, like, what should I do now? Yeah. It's like what you really want as a leader is for them to anticipate, and they frankly just haven't developed that muscle yet because they never had to. Yeah, actually, I want to talk in a few minutes about what employers need to do to do different to help um, the the employees, the young employees develop. But let's talk for a second, actually, about what these kids are growing up in terms of the education system and their sports. You know that it, it strikes me frankly, that these kids are also raised in what I'll call extreme structure. So their lives have been programmed. If they're elite athletes, then they have no time whatsoever. They go from practice to game to, you know, season to season. They have syllabuses. They have homework assignments. They have little time for independent thinking and independent time management. So now you come into the business world, you get given your job, and you get left at your desk to go but you don't have a daily syllabus. Right? So we right. haven't even taught them how to manage their basics. And I keep waffling back and forth between mission and the basic skills. So, um, but, so you know, what's your thought in terms of the education system? Like are we even, you know, the, the whole structure of their days are turned upside down by the time they come to grown-up land? Right, and it goes back to that metaphor. I mean, like, you know, even, I'm 43 and I grew up with a lot of time on my hands, right? And was an athlete and that's how I got to college and it was my ticket, but I still had time on my hands where you were out and about on your own developing some autonomy. But going back to that metaphor of the train trip, that's basically how they're living their life, right? You get poured out of school into your parents or friends back seat to go to some game and then you get poured back into home and then you hit homework that somebody else has given you. So it's like this, schedule that gets put under your door every day that says, here's what you're doing all day today. Right, exactly. And then when you get into adulthood, the idea is actually, in order to be successful, you need to be identifying problems and you need to be coming up with solutions on how to solve it. But again, you're, we've developed a generation of very reactive people who feel like they're just in the backseat all the time on their phone, looking up like, are we there yet? Right, but they're not even it's reacting. Like, they're just on, they're passively on the ride waiting for someone to put them at the next stop yeah exactly right and by the way this is I mean, imagine living your life like that no. after a while you right. can see it really begins to wear on these kids because they're looking around like and it's not early you know 23 24 it's like hey i got my first job i can go to burning man this is awesome right okay great it's like late 20s early 30s where we're really starting to see it now where you ask a lot of millennials is there somebody in your life you trust enough to share really bad news with no they say no. 
that's so sad. Now, where does that right? come from? Where's that piece of it? Because that's a little out of the blue. Yeah, Relative, no, I think but... it's because of, of how, again, they're raised. And, and this goes back, I think, also to the fact that the technology has been so pervasive in their lives. There's a, um, a friend of mine named Gary Moraes has done a lot of research on this. And his view is, and it's actually, I think, one that I agree with, they're great at being social, but they, struck, they struggle with relatability. And those are two very different things. So, for example, I was in San Francisco recently, and I was having a cup of coffee and listening to a conversation of some young folks next to me. There were three people. Everyone's sentences started with I. <laughs> yes. And they were, remember, you know, have you ever heard of parallel play? Like the little kids in the sandbox are yep. kind of in the sandbox right. playing alone, but they're in the same spot. Right. So, you know, the one young woman's like, well, I think I'm going to go to Mongolia. I'm so excited. It's like such this desolate place. It's really going to be good for me. Next woman. I love Mongolia. It's such an interesting place. I would like to go there someday, too. Guy next to them. Well, I think I'm really going to go to India because I'm interested in the Taj Mahal, right? It's like parallel conversations. No one asks right, no the one. other one, oh, why do you want to go to Mongolia? What's interesting about Mongolia? And to me, it's really born from the fact that that's how they were raised because it was kind of about them. And so that lack of relatability that they suffer from actually manifests in that failure to trust anybody or develop right. the relationships where someone can be trusted. And I think those things are just really core issues that provide that kind of internal churn that they're suffering from that results in poor performance at work and real discord with different generations. So now you talk- A lot of people will say, oh, millennials are the same as every other generation. I'm like, no, no, no. if you think that, you've no. never worked with them. Well, I think every generation has its own ism, right? The baby boomers yep. were different. Right? So we all have whatever version of challenge that generation was exposed to. And, you know, the baby boomers grew up in, uh, I'm sorry, baby boomers grew up with a whole bunch of parents that had grown up in the Depression and, and in, you know, post-war so that they didn't want us to suffer at all. So we all, and then we grew up disappointed because everything was supposed to be great and then it didn't happen. Um, right. So, <laughs> so right, every right. generation has their version of it. Um, the you, you talked about the mission, right, and the importance of the mission. Are, are you saying or suggesting that if somebody can find their mission, that that helps um, propel them past some of these holdbacks? Yes. I think a lot of the other things that we're describing are actually ancillary negative effects to just having no self-awareness. But how do they... You ask them, you know, Go ahead. How do they what? I was going to say, like, but it's a big leap. You're, you, it's a big trust from I have no idea. Right? I have no idea what I want. I have no idea where my passion is. I have no idea even to give a crap to ask you a question about where you're talking about to mm-hmm. suddenly find that passion and then to backfill these core, I'll call it skills, but it isn't even skills. It's traits. It's experiences. It's emotions. That all needs yep. to get back backfilled and rebuilt for these kids. Agreed, but it does start with them, and it is doable. And that's what I think is, you know, that's what we really lean into is this amorphous idea of a personal mission. Seems because you could watch a million TED talks out there that say, hey, you know, some enthusiastic, charismatic guy on stage saying, you got to find your mission, you got to find your purpose, you know, figure out where you're going and fight through walls to get there. Don't let anybody stop you. And it's like, okay, that feels nice for 20 minutes, but how the hell do I do that, right? right. And that's where you and I actually have an awesome mutual friend, Nella Barkley, who developed a phenomenal process that allows 
really committed people, because it's not something that happens overnight, but you have to have commitment towards it. Committed people allows them to unearth really deep inside what it is they're on this earth to do, and then put into practice how they should actually do it. And those are really profound changes for folks. But I mean, I'll give you an example. The reason I even got into this is because I was a teacher right out of college. It was my first job. So I've been with our friends, the millennials, for 20 years now because I was teaching them when I was younger. Um, and as I got older and I got more into the private sector and folks would say, hey, would you you know, speak to a friend of mine's daughter who just graduated and she's looking for a job? And I'm sure you get those kind of requests all the time, right? Sure. And as I got older, I was shocked when I would sit with some you know, young man and say, okay, you just graduated from the University of Virginia. You were an English major. Why were you an English major? Well, my mom told me that since I like reading, I should be an English major. Right. Um, okay. Well, uh, and how did you get into Virginia? And they would go through, again, that box checking that is so phenomenally um, widespread so that they got, you know, they bought, checked the right box to get into school. And then I would say simply the same thing. Well, what do you want to do? I have no idea. What are you passionate about? I have no idea. It's like, how the hell did you get through four years of school and not know any of these questions? So I would actually encourage them to self-reflect. And then they would, I would actually give them prompts to go and self-reflect and write about themselves and think about themselves in very specific terms about where they've been successful, where they've actually done things autonomously with pride and with achievement and come back and let's start there at least, right? So it's a simple little exercise. And they would come back with their eyes so wide and say, this was so profound to do this self-reflective exercise. And said, no one's ever asked you to do this before? No. Like they could write essays on Jane Eyre terrifically well, right? But actually writing about themselves is something they've never been an opportunity to, to do. And they also haven't had, because of phones in their hand all the time, they haven't even had a time to reflect even mentally on it, let alone through the written word. Well, and I think so people don't even realize how great they are. I think, there, I think there's a lot of stuff that kids do every day that we all do every day that we don't realize we did. That was amazing. You know, Jimmy Stewart, It's a Wonderful Life. That, you know, and even with adults where they suggest that you go back through your day and say, what did I do today? And if you take the yeah. time to do that exercise, yeah, even these kids did some phenomenal things. Yes, and then you figure out what those little bright spots are that they did with pleasure and actually moved the needle in terms of performance, and then you emulate those bright spots. But it, it's a methodical process, so they actually take the time to figure out what they're great at and what they want to do. And then anybody, I mean, I'm, we're convinced that anybody can go through this process and figure it out, but you've got to take the time to do it. And, and sure enough, once they do, you can see it. They'll say, God, I used to feel so unmoored. And that's why I'm lurching from activity to activity, trip to trip, conversation to conversation, right? Like, even if conversations get a little too intimate, they turn away. It's like, ooh, I don't, you know, this doesn't feel great because I don't have real confidence in my center of who I am. And if you can provide that mooring, it produces huge results on all those other ancillary things that we've been talking about. So though, that's a lot of hard work, even for the most mature adult to be able to do on their own. I mean, is this, is this something that, you know, best working that you've got, this is, this is part of, I know you do, you have your program for people and you do your coaching for people, but are there independent study guides? Are there, are there books? Are there, you know, forms that, that people are able to do on their own? Or is this really something that has to be done? I'll call it with a therapist, not a therapist, but with a coach, with a Spencer, with a whoever, because it's tough stuff. And these kids, you know, to, it is. When you, when you don't even have the self-confidence or the self-esteem or the self-awareness of any of this, 
you can't just sit there with a blank piece of paper and go, wow, here's where I'm going or here's what I've done. 100%. Hundred percent, and that's where I think going to your earlier question about how can managers be more effective managers and leaders, and we want to bring down this wall around. Oh, you know, we can't talk about personal things or whatever. You have to talk about personal things with these folks that are working for you, and if you can be the agent of that change, if you as the manager or the leader or the mentor can actually spend some time with a young person who has a high ceiling that's working with you and actually help them figure out what it is they want to be doing genuinely, not you know telling you what they think you want to hear, but actually figure out what they want to do, their link to you and the company will be profound. And it's not that hard. It, it, sorry, it's like a diet, right? It's actually easy to understand, but very hard to do, especially over the long period of time. And that's where the coach is really important. Or working out. Like there's a reason that we pay trainers a lot of money to basically stand there and tell us to do 10 more because there is a lot of value in that, right? So I think if you view yourself as a mentor or guide, there's a lot of self-reflective work. Actually, Nella has a book out there uh, that anybody could buy on Amazon if you have the discipline to go through the process. Um, what's but Nell I do think Nella's book, the, What Colors Your Parachute? With you. what, Sorry? What's Nella's book? Well, not what, what Colors Your Parachute or another one? No, Taking Charge of Your Career. Okay. Nella Barkley, Taking Charge of Your Career. Nella is awesome. Nella is amazing, and she's got these keys to the. She created with John Crystal, her former partner. You know this process that again is like such an inventive and clear way to get to such a gauzy and difficult issue, which is your personal mission. Without a doubt, and yet it's profound once you get there, um, and that's what these kids need. Because that's why all the stuff we're talking about that shows up at work is really, I think, a function of that. All right, so let's break down a little bit. Let's go to these these kids. Let's see, do I want to do, should we talk about the what the employers can do to to create a culture and an environment, a fertile environment for them, or should we talk about the kids first or the young people first in terms of what they need to do? Let's talk about. Um, well, well, why don't we talk about that since we already were speaking a little bit about what managers and leaders can do. I think the other thing managers and leaders can do is slow down because when you've got a lot of people who don't have a ton of self-awareness who are kind of good on the margin with some tact but don't have a ton of self-awareness you really need to slow down and drive conversation back into the workplace and i describe it i've heard it described and i love the phrase which is so many workplaces are awash in kind of hit and run communication right you send out an email to seven people they send you seven responses back Oh. It turns into like a crap fest because no one really knows what's going on. And then, and it's like if you were just to gather with seven people for seven minutes and have a genuine slow conversation, I think if you slow everybody down, your business results will actually speed up. Oh, I can't but tell you how so many times. Up. Yes. Pick up the phone. Go, go talk to someone. No, I, I have the same conversation with people. I agree with you. Yeah. And so if we can drive conversation back in there, and that means a true exchange of ideas, right? So going back to relatable versus social, you have to be coming in as an inquiring mentor and an inquiring leader, not somebody who's a taskmaster, because that will not work. And I don't think that's just with millennials. That's anybody these days in the knowledge economy. I mean, you really want to tap into what people's best skills are. And if you're just telling people what to do all the time, you're not managing for the 21st century. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, you I, need to provide. You're probably seeing a lot of this just in terms of the decline of management communication and management structure as you're saying through electronics i think managers they're not being taught how to manage there may be some high-priced consultant coming in but they're not taught to how to communicate how to talk to people how to give feedback to people 
and you've spoken about the importance of the millennials needing feedback. They, they're like in this, yes. right? Immediate and repeatable and concise feedback all the time. And that doesn't happen through an email or a Slack, right? So you're exactly right. I think that's where the Discord also lies. So it's, uh, going back to that um, analogy of the parent and the whiny kid, right? The whiny three-year-old is really not at fault when that three-year-old is like blowing up everybody's holiday dinner. Kind of like the parents' fault for not taking the kid out of the high chair and moving to another room. And I think in a lot of ways, that's why this book is not called I am the Millennial Whisperer or there's no way you can be the Millennial Whisperer. Right. Like it actually is something that anybody can do provided you take the time and the genuine interest in their well-being. So that's really what a coach is, right? It's somebody who's really interested in another's well-being and wants to take a hands-on approach to help them get there. And I think importantly, and they want to get there, right? This isn't a checked-out generation. They desperately want the feedback, and they desperately want to attain the successes. Exactly, and they have no idea how to get there. And again, they've been sold the wrong plan, which is everybody told me if I just get a job at Google, I'll be fine. And then they get a job at Google, and they're like, wait, I'm not fine. They got Pop-Tarts. <laughs> they got <laughs> Pop-Tarts and cereal bars. Right. It's like, well, what are you going to do there that really allows you to pursue that focus excellence over time so that happiness and fulfillment will come? And they say, well, I have no idea. I'm waiting, right? So that goes back to what the managers and the leaders can do, which is broach these subjects, even though they seem a little gauzy or a little tough or a little personal, because it's vital to actually do that in order to enhance productivity. I mean, engagement in American offices have been, has been stuck at 30% for 15 years. And productivity has been stuck at 25% right. and going down. And it's because as we've gotten so connected in the knowledge economy to each other, and that's really where the value is, right? It's not what we're doing, but what we know and how we can spread it. Not tapping into people is driving engagement way down, and it's also crushing productivity, which is great because that means there's an opportunity to fix it, but managers and leaders have to slow down and have those conversations about where people really should fit the best. And is this something also that managers and leaders and team members as well need to understand? It's not a one and done. You can't suddenly, you know, every so often we'll, we'll have some event at the office like, oh, let's all get together and connect. And I always call those forced fun, right? So you can't just call yeah. out everyone in a room and say, okay, share your passions with me now. Share your fears with me now. Where do you want to go? Right. Like it has to be a slow build of trust, of rapport, and you know, kind of an unpeeling, and just an exploration of you know because they don't even know how to do it. So they're not going to magically wake up, show up in a conference room, and go, "Hi, here's what I want to do for my life." Right, and you're exactly right. It's not going to be a contrived happy hour that's going to get you connected either. It really has to be that approach, like we do with you know elite teams, right? Like that's why teams bond because they spend a lot of time in the locker room. They spend a lot of time traveling and eating meals together and all that stuff. They get to, now those are pro athletes, so it's their job. Not everybody likes each other as much as you know. I may like my teammate over here, but not so much that guy over there. But we still work together as athletes, and we still have to come together as a team to perform. And that t downtime that we spend to really get to know each other is, is part of it. I mean, that's really part of the ethic here that I would advocate for, which is work should include time for that. You're right, every day. And going back to Google, I mean, Google is a, a super impressive company, frankly. And I know they got the bells and whistles and pool tables and pop tarts and all that stuff. But if you ask millennials they, or anybody, really, that's 
again, on the margins. That doesn't really drive fulfillment or engagement. It's doing work that you can do with pride that allows you to really feel engaged. And again, if you don't know yourself, you're going to have no idea what work brings you pride. Right. Now, again, so one we last... Got it. We got it. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead. You no, finish. No, go ahead. Um, so let me also, though, just bring it back for the employers. I think also there's the... What, what's your thought in terms of the the basics as well in terms of kind of you know you need to you need to do the sit-ups and you need to do the push-ups to be able to strengthen your core muscles to be able to play the game so the employers needing to also know they have to give clear structure and clear guidance and they can't just go sit, sit the kids at a desk and say go so that they need it's right. not just the constant feedback but also creating a structure that helps them graduate from the land of over-programming to slowly develop their skills and their chops and their confidence of independent decision-making. That's right, and I think and I think the other thing that they've been told is they're very focused on what to do, right? Like, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? It's like, well, hold on, who do you want to be? How do you want to be is much more important. And what you suggest and exactly what we advocate for with professional clients and firms that we work with is you can have, you know, integrity and high performance and love each other like etched into your lobby wall as your values or whatever, but that doesn't really matter, right? What really matters is how things operate on a daily basis and that's where culture happens inside companies. And I agree with you that managers get all irritated when younger people aren't behaving in the way they want them to behave, but they never made it clear how we operate around here. So I advocate for folks to actually sit down with leadership and actually, we, we, we do this with a lot of clients. We help them create what's called a core document. And that is basically the architecture for how we behave here at Bottom Line. It's not telling you what to do, it's telling you how to be. And giving people a really clear in black and white framework for, you know, even down to we respond to people within 24 hours. But once you have things like that in black and white, so this is just how we are, it gives the young people a framework that they're used to. So they can say, oh, that's how I, that's kind of my guide, guiding light for how I need to work around here at bottom line. And it also gives you the framework for feedback. Right, exactly. So, so it's now like let's... if one of your, if one of your items is we show up on time, period, great. So then that person, that, that's written in black and white in your, you know, core document that you have posted in your, in your office. So when that young man comes in for the fourth time late, you can say, look, this is who we are and how we are. We show up on time. You're not doing that. Either you have something going on we need to work through or you just don't want to be here. You're not, this isn't the right thing for you. But at least it gives you some vernacular to lean into when you're giving that feedback. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So just as an aside, and then I want to talk about advice to the young workers of what they need to do to succeed. But it occurs to me, what's your opinion about this increasing trend of flexible work hours, work from home, flex environments, all that sort of stuff? I think it's actually a great trend provided, again, that everybody understands what everybody else is doing. I think it falls down when no one knows when anybody's going to be in or where they're going to be or how the whole thing works. I think for, uh, particularly for women, I think it's one of the reasons that we see these horrendous leadership numbers stuck at such low rates when you get to certain um, uh, levels in different companies. Like different companies have their fall off place, you know, where women are mm-hmm. basically represented at certain levels, and all of a sudden it's like managing director or partner right. or even SVP. It's like now the numbers go from 4060 to 595. And I think the flexibility that 
is frankly really needed by a lot of professional women is vital and we have to actually afford we have to let them have it yes uh, although because otherwise it won't work it seems though to be a little antithetical to the whole conversation we're having about mission and connection and and young people needing to build the rapport and to find a place to communicate so that if they are in their homes or they're off at you know we work places that they're not building the team connection how do you how do you overcome that i think it depends on what you and your company stand for right i think there's great companies we actually have a lot of remote workers and it works great people feel like they're on the team they're super connected i Mm -hmm. think we do a good job of creating that culture but there are other companies where it's vital that you actually are present and again if you just make that explicit then it's easier for somebody to come in and engage that said, when I when you talk about flexible work hours, I immediately start thinking about professional women who are dem- who are managing kids and oh yeah um, schedules and parents and all that. But you're right. If some 24 year old says, "Yeah, I want to work here, but I just want to hang out and eat, eat you know um, frosted flakes on the couch so I can work on my laptop at home," like if that's not part of your culture, again, if you if you, if you haven't made it explicit, hopefully you have that that's, that you need people in, then they don't then that's the way you said it, and that's the, they should be in working with you. Yeah. I, think it's, I think it's totally appropriate. You just have to be clear up front what the expectation is, but I think there's many different ways to create teams. I'll go back to another example, world teams, right? Like there are amazing elite Team USAs across a lot of different sports, and a lot of those people gather only you know a couple times a year, maybe once every quarter, and they practice together. They have their own teams they play on, and then they're so elite mm-hmm. they get called to the world team. And they connect remotely, and yet they are super bonded, even though they're not always in the same building together. There's ways to do it. It just has to come from the leader who has a vision of, again, this is what we're doing as a company. This is why we're doing it, and this is how we roll around here. If you can do that as a leader, you'll begin to really bond those people together regardless of whether they're remote or in person. Right, setting up those clear expectations and the clear culture. All right, so yeah. let's talk about the young people coming that are in the work world or coming into the work world. What is it that they need to keep in mind to be successful or you know to adapt? Because you know the, the new thing about they call it adulting, right? Oh wow, I didn't realize adulting was so right. hard. So how, what what advice right. can we give to them? I think we need to give them clear advice that this is no longer about you. So again, they're getting pushed out in the world saying, hey, find a company that's going to develop you. Find a company that's got you know, your um, best wishes at heart. Look, the company is there to create customers, right? And, ha- and hopefully create this virtual, virtuous machine where customers are happy and also employees are happy because they're making money and they can take vacations and you know, buy health insurance and all that important stuff, right? But the goal of the company is not just to make you as an employee happy. So I think we need to, again, change the mindset because you can't just tell them, hey, here's the behavior you need to embrace. It's change the mindset and say, look, when you go out for work, you need to be like the ultimate, ultimate private investigator looking for needs. What does the company need? Not what do you need, but what does the company need that you find interesting enough that you would like to put your shoulder behind for the long term? And that's a much different way of looking for work rather than here's my resume. I hope you hire me. And pay me a lot of money. Yeah, pay me a lot of money and make me VP in two years so I can tell my uncle that I'm cool. What are you talking about? So what you need to do, if I come and say, hey, I think I like bottom line. I've read a lot of your material over the years. I like your angle. I like the demographic you're focused on. Can I talk to you, Sarah, about what your greatest pain points are as leader? 
that's a vastly different way to look for work and one that will be much more fulfilling because you'll be eager to tell me, right? Because if I'm actually asking you thoughtful questions like, wow, I've studied your business, rather than I've spent all my time honing my resume so I look great and no time researching bottom line and what your needs are, that's just like the wrong, it's totally the wrong way to go about it and it has to be recreated in an oppositional way. And no one is giving them that advice. That's what I would say. Number one, go out job searching thinking not about yourself, but about the work that different places need to have completed. Awesome. Okay. Number two, you got a second piece of advice? Number one. Number two <laughs> is the number one. <laughs> no, I didn't realize. Okay. I, I, oh, I, I don't know. I didn't know. realize I was counting off. You, well, you said number one. I wasn't sure if there was a number two. Um, yeah, well, so, <laughs> but I think that's no, – I, I think, I think, I think that encompasses Sorry. so much. I mean, the whole concept of worry about them and not about you then strips away the, but I need the feedback, but I need to grow really fast, but I need my raise really fast. Like it, it supersedes all the rest of those small things. It does. And, and then it, there is a number two, which is you really do have to know what you're good at. And again, these kids do not. If I, I'm just shocked at the you know, high-end universities pumping out these kids year after year, and they don't know what they're great at. And so what I would do is also, if I were going out and looking for work right now, because that's where the beauty aligns, right? If I find a need at bottom line that actually overlaps with something I'm good at, then it becomes virtuous. And again, all those ancillary things we talk about kind of fade because I'm actually doing work that I want to do. But again, you can't just, here's a great thing. So I was talking to a young person the other day. What are you good at? I'm a good leader. Oh, great. Tell me about that. How, what does that look like? Well, um, my boss has some clients in town, and he put those clients in my charge, so I actually led them around the event for the day. <laughs> That's nice. That's nice. Right. That's 100% not leadership, right? right? But the kid is totally genuine thinking, hey, I'm a great leader because right. I brought clients around the event. Right. So really backing up and figuring out, okay, what really were you good at here? Maybe client development, maybe communication, maybe um, asking great questions to make them comfortable, whatever. Right. Something you have to unpack and then have, and then have real specific examples behind it. So when Sarah, you say, oh, you're a great leader, give me some examples of that, you can actually say, well, I've been doing it since I was seven. I did it here when I was nine years old, right. I did it when I was 15, and now at 25 I'm leading a nonprofit down the street, and here's been our result. Right. So you are like, whoa, okay, this person's really got their act together, rather than, oh, yeah, I'm a good leader because I took a client around an event. Right. Like, well, and whoa, that, that and is- all this goes back to your exercise of, of looking at, in turn your, into yourself and seeing what you're good at, seeing what you accomplished that day. Um, I think, can I ask you about one other aspect of it, um, which is, to me, I think that they have this fear of imperfection. That, you know, that they have to know all the answers, they have to have it all covered, that they're afraid that, that they still have to learn stuff, and they're afraid they're going to get judged in a way, you know, um, and, to, yep. and to let go of that and to realize, again, you have a lot to learn, and that's okay. Yes, and actually that's where you're going to grow. And I think it goes back to, again, that, you know, that I have a sister who's five years older than me, and I have a sister who's five years younger than me, right? Same split. The world that my older sister and I kind of grew up in was very similar. And then my younger sister, who was born in 80, it was just a very different place. 
And even down to like how high school looked and going into college, right? She applied to like 15 schools and my older sister and I applied to a couple. It was right. just, a, it's just a total, everything kind of shifted. And I think one of the other things that shifted is, this, is again, great inflation. Like when's the last time you heard anybody get a C? It doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. And also everybody's great at everything. It's like, oh yeah, you're good at, you know, you got this participation show, um, trophy at soccer, that's great. You're a good soccer player, put it on the shelf. And so there is that fear of failure and that perfectionism that is so toxic because it creates, like I said earlier, these risk-averse people. And the only way you're going to grow or create value is if you take risk. And they are like these risk-averse generalists rather than risk-taking, specific, uh, specifically focused people, which is exactly what you and I and the world really need them to be. Yes, exactly. Um, so I think, that, I think that, right, that fear of failure due to perfectionism is the biggest hindrance that we talked about at the top of the call. Yeah. All right, Spencer Deering, you and I could talk for hours, but I'm going to let you go. So your website, bestworkinc.com. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure to talk to you, and I hope we can chat again too. Okay, my delight. All right, we'll see you soon. I'm talking to Spencer Deering, author of How to Be a Millennial Whisperer about the challenges faced by young people as they enter the world of adulting and the challenges for employers in motivating and inspiring these hungry, aggressive workers. The rate of change in business is creating new challenges for employees and employers alike. Without adapting to the changes in the work environment, both sides are doomed to fail. Spencer is just one of the thousands of experts featured in our twice-monthly newsletter, Bottom Line Personal, who provide their expert advice to guide readers into action in their own lives. In addition to career guidance for people of all ages and levels, Bottom Line Personal is filled with actionable advice on all aspects of your life, including living a healthy life, what are the best credit card deals, how to buy the right insurance, retirement planning, fabulous food and wine, smart tax strategies, and even travel to little-known destinations. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP.